Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm on fire. I I have had a very, very uh, productive late afternoon, and I'm going to jump straight into uh, a little thing I think we should make part of the our new segments because i think it just brings into really tight focus uh what we're on about generally but the first is noticing something small in the news that other people might not feel is significant or as significant an example of something and yet we do and the, the first thing that grabbed my mind of light is a report from Japan and the authority that oversees sumo wrestling that they have lowered the standard, so to speak, and to some extent abandoned the formal uh, size and weight uh, restrictions requirements for the sport or art. (laughs) And I just think that is so interesting because Juxtapose that with the state of Oregon today, continuing to suspend all performance requirements for high school students to graduate. Now, that's kind of just fodder for the American culture war sort of thing. And we kind of expect, I mean, it's Oregon. But somehow to me, Japan abandoning traditional sumo wrestling standards seems really more resonant, much more resonant. And my other segment sort of contrast to this, a little thing in the news that maybe other people miss, is breaking down an ongoing misunderstanding or rather unexamined position built into a particular phrase. And I was thinking of the phrase breaking the internet. And I let my the AI system that I'm beta testing do its analytic thing rather than generative thing. And it came back with a very, very interesting perspective. Stories, stories or, you know, events that supposedly break the Internet, which really means just overloading social media, right? They skew 85% roughly, female in orientation. So the AI view is that the expression to break the internet or to get a news story that has that kind of, you know, impact, it is going to be a predominantly female directed, approved uh, appeal story. And In a sense, that's not really surprising, but I think it's something that we rarely acknowledge, and we certainly don't acknowledge a skew that great. So those are my two thoughts. Uh, Not much uh, to report on the personal front, except some good creative work on all fronts. How are things in your zone? Good. I taught the Call of Cthulhu today. For it was fun. It was fun. Uh, I got some one one kid after we were done reading it said um, she shouted out, uh, "I love that." 
And I thought that was just cool. I thought that enthusiasm was cool. Some fell asleep, as some are wont to do when you're reading Lovecraft. But I do have this idea that, you know, I need to find I need to find the the tribe. I gotta find the the people. And falling asleep is totally fine because guess what? There's gonna be a pop quiz tomorrow, bright and early when they get into class. Oh, uh, you're in the group, but, man. But um but it doesn't it doesn't bother me because what I'm beginning to realize about the kids, and they are kids, is that If they're not that it's not that they're not interested in Lovecraft or Ursula Le Guin or the yellow wallpaper or anything like that. It's that kids, I think, are only interested in what they're interested in. And anything outside of that, in large part, doesn't get in. What I mean by that is that there are some who are able to i was watching the kids as we were reading the book and i was watching the ones who are really engaged and they're the same kids who one of them wants to be in nasa he wants to be an aerospace engineer and he's already passed calculus he's taking college courses he's a junior uh he's in uh you know jrotc like he's got his and he can solve a rubik's cube in 30 seconds right so this this kid and and i i and i knew he was gonna like the call of cthulhu and he did and he said he said where can i find more of this and i said it's all on project gutenberg all of lovecraft is free so there are kids who are maybe maybe not quite as together as him but the ability for them to be able to be introduced to something new and engage with it some of them have it and some of them just don't. They just don't care. And for for them, I have tricks and and needling and and ways to get them involved. Cause you know, I have a very casual, jokey, friendly relationship with all the kids. You know, I'm not a big, I've never screamed, I'm not a taskmaster. I'm very casual. But um but you just begin to see that, and I wonder what it is. I wonder if it's upbringing or genetics or what, but some of them just get it. And it all comes down to this ability to engage with something that wasn't necessarily on your agenda for the day. Do you see what I mean? Like, Oh, I do. I think the, yeah. the psychology of, of learning is grossly underrated and completely misunderstood i mean we simply don't have a handle on that and it is completely mysterious why you know some people really get in a groove and some people don't one thing i would say though and i think that i've noticed this in my own life and i've heard this from other people that over time over time education moments or large subjects or individual teachers there are different ways it comes together will actually somehow reappear in in later life and they may re truly reappear as if you've never dealt with them since or they may be really prismatic new interpretations of something and you suddenly start to see oh 
Oh, and also there is the benefit of, of having to give credence to a memory, you know, five, 10 years, 20 years later, because, you know, it's there and you have to think, well, okay, why did I remember that? Oh, okay. This is what I learned from that. And the whole thing is, is it's amazing that we actually have any adults fully functioning, walking around in my view. I mean, I think that's a very, very strange thing. I don't believe that enough credit can be taken by the educational system. I I think more should be, uh, they should be held more accountable. Um, but on the other hand, the, the parental thing, the upbringing thing, I, I can't imagine how we could expect the results from that my generation might, you know, put forward or present with the way a lot of kids grow up today. Yeah. I mean, I asked my students, have, do you, if they're still at home and many of them are because they can't afford otherwise, do you have a dedicated reading area? You know, I mean, look behind me, I've got a good chair and a, and a dedicated mm -hmm. But I didn't start doing that recently. I, I had the benefit of that when I was pretty young. Right. It's that. No. Yeah, it's that. And I think a key factor in that as well is the idea, and it's a broad idea, but it's a very lost explorer's idea of being being willing to to do things that you're not planning on doing. We do it now naturally, and maybe it was taught to us. Maybe we learned it over time. But people like you and I and people like my best students encounter something new and are excited by it. We think, oh, okay, well, this wasn't on the agenda, but let's check it out. Let's let's yeah. see what's going on. And I think that what I worry about with this generation in particular, because my students were mostly born in 2007, the same year the iPhone came out. And what I'm worried about in particular for this generation, and I know everybody says this, but this time it's true. Um, they've grown up with curated algorithmic feeds that give them whatever they want, whenever they want. If they are four years old and they like videos of sharks, they can watch four hours of shark content. And the issue with that is, I mean, even from my perspective as a kid who had a TV, we you're at the mercy of the programming when it, whatever's coming on is what's coming on. You can't force your TV to watch Ninja Turtles again. If you want, you have to take what comes and that taking what comes is a skill that is being lost. And I think that those who have it are going to really succeed. And those who aren't won't straight up. It's a very, very deep uh, ancient divide in character, intellect, and overall capability. I talk about it in, in my textbook, and it's certainly on my mind with the, the book in progress, the distinction between ambush or surprise. Mm. You know, both of those kind of, they're synonyms almost in a sense, but think of the gigantic psychological difference there is. Some people feel that anything that's not on the menu or unexpected is an ambush of some kind. It's on that spectrum. And the other 
people that you're talking about. Think surprise in a, wow, that's cool, you know? And it is, I don't think we will ever have a final answer about why that distinction exists because it isn't intellect only. It's not intellect, capability, and upbringing. I think it's it's just more mysterious. It's further further uh, suggestive proof or inquiry into a fundamentally non-reducible aspect of being and in any way that we consider individual. You know, it really is that that private secret, hidden giant, eternal perhaps something that is you. And it really is, those other things are kind of helpful descriptions, maybe, maybe, also limitations. This is something non-negotiable and really not comprehensible in those terms, I think. Yeah, I agree. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today? I do, I do. Okay, because we're closing in on Halloween, we've got a theme band. This name came to me in a dream. It's been very, very active for dreams, as you'll see. But the name of the band is Doll's Head Mac and Cheese. Just kind of get an image of that. More an urban legend than a band in any genre. Although bootlegs and pirated recordings are highly sought after. The idea is that if you listen to their music, you'll go insane. Listening to them becomes like a ghost pepper TikTok challenge. Of course, people do go insane and some die or commit violent crimes. The legend becomes a self-fulfilling mass psychosis. But does the band really exist or is it a composite fantasy? They do have an album. It's called Empty Stadium. And the one track that is talked about generally and is the the one that you shouldn't listen to is called Hear What You Fear. I would love to see a short story done in the style of an oral history of this band or alternatively a collection of album reviews and concert reviews for this band that could be a really cool borgesian uh uh take on music as a whole and the idea of celebrity or uh, what it means to be a band as well I love that idea. That is a beautiful extension and and riff on this. I wonder what, I mean, I think that would be a fantastic sort of mockumentary, you know? Uh, I I think that's the storytelling medium for it, as you just described. But I love the building idea, you know, the Borgesian endlessness and... Mm -hmm. And it does tie in with, with with pop culture legend. Have you ever heard the story of Hornets attack Victor Mature? No. Okay, well, it was kind of in the background inspiration. I was thinking about strange, you know, memory things, and that popped up. 
Well, I think the urban pop culture legend goes like this, that there's a DJ on a kind of major LA station, but not as good as it could be, sort of second tier. And he was having one of those days of wondering, well, does this matter? And he mentioned on Mike, he said, well, you know, if anyone really, you know, cares about anything, I here I've got a recommendation about a band that I think is just amazing. They call themselves Hornets Attack Victor Mature. And if anyone's really listening to me, they'll they'll really start to get behind this band. Well, he just made that up. You know, there was no real band at the time like that, but it kind of fit into uh, a moment in in L.A. music, uh, kind of in between the waves of things, looking for some new direction after new wave that wasn't sort of grunge that Seattle owned and all that kind of thing. So people started, there are references to this now. It really did begin to get, you know, some traction. But I think Dolls Head Mac and Cheese could go much bigger time. I do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's amazing. What's your aphorism for today? Okay. I was we've been talking a lot about boundaries, edges, categories. And of course that ties in with identity. And I was lying on my couch looking at my wall of of masks. And I thought, yeah, there, the whole interior decoration is me, for sure. But the statement that came out was very, very clear. I am the masks on the wall. And I like just the sound of that, the simplicity of the, the fact that you don't actually have to imagine my wall of masks, literally. But I think it also says something about we do... It is true, I think, that wherever we are is kind of an extension or projection of what we are inside. You know, that's an alchemical, occult, basic idea. But I think what my aphorism gets to is we need to be a little bit careful that we don't think we're evenly distributed, that the projection is is evenly balanced. I don't think we need to take responsibility or credit for every single little object. I think that my focus on the masks on the wall was I had a whole bunch of choices. You know, I could have said the skulls on the mantle, you know. Um, But I think there was something in that that resonates in a way that is where you need to be in taking credit or responsibility for how your environment reflects your inner self. Because sometimes that can be problematic, you know, and mm-hmm. you don't want to get overcommitted to that. You just don't want to forget about it. Absolutely. I uh, I wrote that down to make sure that I remember that. I like to steal Chris's aphorisms at times and just write them on my board and give no explanation. And I think it would be really funny to write, I'm the masks on the wall tomorrow. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's good karma for me to be in Oklahoma, you know, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That'd be really cool. I'd feel that magic, man. I would. Where do you get your shirts at? By the I love your shirt. Oh, thanks. Uh, Well, this is, uh, yeah, I bought this in a store in Vegas. No, no, I think, no, no, I take that back. 
No, I did. Yeah, I bought this. Um, but New Chic has a lot of cool shirts. They were advertising online everywhere for a while. And some of them are are really, you know, pretty reasonably priced, like 23, 25 bucks. But this okay. is this is really well made. This will be around for a long time. It's one of my favorite patterns. My students like this when I they go, oh cool. It's a cool shirt. It's a really cool shirt. What is my imaginative challenge for today okay so we've got a uh, a time travel story for you coming up i think i may have mentioned that when i left home at 17 in the middle of the night i had this absolutely mystical imperative to go visit the grave of james dean or the, mm-hmm. the site of the car crash in shalom california which is cattle and pistachio nowhere on, you know, on the way to the central coast. And it was incredibly moving. And there is a memorial there that was left by a Japanese absolute devoted fan, very rich. I thought that might be something interesting for you to follow up with agitator. I don't know mm-hmm, anything mm-hmm. about this person, but it nevertheless, this incident sticks with me. Well, so your working title is see you in Paso Robles which are the last words that anyone ever heard James Dean speak before he died in head-on collision in his Porsche Spider on the way to race in Salinas. All right. Well, you are a 17-year-old growing up in Oxnard, California, predominantly Hispanic. You don't have any real clue about your identity and moving forward, you're really kind of lost in time. And one of your focus, your number one, you almost have a shrine to James Dean in your room. And almost everyone you know your age really doesn't know who he is. It's just they're they're disconnected from it. And you pray to the mystic forces that you're not really clear about that if you could only go back in time to September 1954 and save James Dean, that you would, and you do, you get to do that. You get to go back. So your challenge in your story point beginning is to explain how you save James Dean, what's involved in that moment on that day around sunset. But really, the heart of your challenge is what would that change mean to history? You know, we're often thinking of little things that trigger major things. But sometimes the deaths of celebrities are major things. What would change history in that back to the future kind of way? Do you want to go at it playfully? Do you want to look at it more seriously? This is kind of what we're getting to. But I think this is a really... um, a lovely challenge for you. Mm, I like it. I like it. I can do this. I can definitely do this. For the main body of the show today, you sent a lot of very interesting notes. The last one in particular is amazing to me. It blew my mind. But we'll get to that when we get to that. 
if we get to it today. Well, yeah, look, I think that, you know, you're a tremendous band leader, and I think we should always follow your advice and intuition about, you know, how you want to peel it apart, where you want to go with it. They're always just kind of thought starter trail markers. I think we have to talk about a few of these before we get to bring it home. Okay. The, the idea of the vicarious. We'll start at the top. To, quote, follow the science in orthodox terms means first to agree with the assertion that physics, however complete or incomplete, is humanity's best guide to reality. It defines reality. Whatever you think of this position, it's undeniably clear that the species as a global whole doesn't live like this. At best, most people's worldviews are a hodgepodge of belief systems, rather like the miscellany that homeless people scavenge together. Few people have much genuine education and knowledge of physics in literal terms. So we have a catechism that's demonstrably schizophrenic. It's often mouthed, but not really believed or understood. So when you say that most of the world doesn't have the same understanding of physics that we do, what do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we can say without question that education is very unevenly distributed and right. delivered uh, without a consensus of, of what it actually entails. So insofar as an understanding of physics depends on education, We've got tremendous inconsistencies there. But I think that the number of people, the percentage of people who believe that physics is the best paradigm for understanding reality and existence is really a minority position. I, I think that if we look in global terms, we see, although religion in a formal sense appears to be on the decline in America, that's certainly not true worldwide. And I think those people either implicitly or explicitly maintain that physics is insufficient to understanding reality. Um, and then there are so many people who have no idea really uh, what physics actually involves, but they would certainly have it only on the very, you can't even call it the Newtonian level because they wouldn't, they wouldn't get that idea. It's the immediate practical physical perceptual framework and the cultural systems that have grown up to deal with that, but they're not processing it in, in a worldview sense. They're not even processing it at all, almost. They're they're unconscious of it. So does that help with that? I, I think that we just yeah. we kind of assume that um, physics has uh, an almost priestly power mm -hmm. in society. And I'm not saying that there aren't, there isn't attention to physics, but I think it's more an institutionalized ghost of what physics seems to be and is presented as a PR device to the public rather than something that is, is actually understood. And I, you know, the proof of that is 
I mean, I, I think a lot of people would walk into, you know, a classroom and see a physics equation and not have any idea, you know? Right, and right. So right. therefore, if that's the religion, if that's the worldview, uh, I think you should have some idea. Is that a legitimate equation? Or are you just being fooled? You know, that kind of thing. It brings to mind the question, is religion any belief system that is outsourced, i.e. it is not integrated into the self or the daily life of the churchgoer, but rather uh, is something that they depend on a priest or a vicar or somebody like that, or a physician, not a physician, sorry, a physicist to explain to them. Because what I hear you talking about is this is this barrier between everyday common knowledge, integration of that knowledge, and the idea that there are some things that are for smart people that should be, not just are, but should be put behind this wall, and that only a select few should be uh, uh, so blessed to be able to engage with. That was absolutely fascinating to me, particularly at this this exact moment. Your timing is often just so wonderfully harmonic and resonant with uh, questions that I've been dealing with in, in my book. You're very, very compact and clearly targeted suggestion, or you, you phrased it as a question, is religion any sort of belief system that can be outsourced. I love that that phrasing and that framework. And what you've done is that's an example of one of the, the really major uh, conceptual skills I'm looking at, which I call simply triangulation. And it's the basis of triangulation in a, in a navigational sense, in a trigonometric sense, but in an argumentative, you know, logical sense, but I think that was a beautiful frame to put down on. A, and what does that, the vicarious nature of that, the removal, the point of another perspective, the submission is, it? you know, there are all these, you know, interesting relationships, depending on who you plug into that outsource category, the psychotherapist and the priest, similar but nuanced differences at least, and for some people, maybe big differences. But I liked that. I thought that was very, uh, very pointedly on the money and helpful to me. Awesome. Glad to hear that. This is Chris again. The ties, this ties in with a theme that we've discussed previously. To what extent is any individual an emblem, hologram, or sigil of their culture? extraterrestrial aliens always seem to be archetypal emblems they know of their they know all of their sciences species knowledge is distributed we're now manufacturing and distributing ignorance human knowledge moves more off-site and out of body into libraries databases and ai systems or just fades away skill fades away for sure this was the first idea in your text that blew my mind because you hear this refrain over and over again when it comes to UAPs or ETs or whatever, they're probably a race of beings that is just so much more advanced than us. And I would change that to 
their technology is more advanced than ours, but there's nothing that states that they have to be more advanced or intelligent than we are at all. The average ET that's in there. And this idea of societies that actively, as you put it, manufacture and distribute ignorance are naturally going to improve technologically to those who gain access to the knowledge necessary to replicate and enhance that technology while still keeping a populace that is by and large IQ 190, something like that. And that to me is so true and so counter to the narrative of progress, the idea that we as a species progress as technology progresses. So no, as technology progresses, the mechanisms put in place to manufacture ignorance get stronger and stronger and stronger. There was no real need for anything like a TikTok in 1850. Now TikTok is necessary. It's not necessary to make people's lives better. It's necessary to keep a populace from overrunning and gaining knowledge of the self, knowledge of the technologies that run their lives, <clears throat> and the ability to uh, to actually live fulfilled lives. People were too busy struggling back then to do that. So I love that point. I thought that point. That's not really a question. I just love that. Well, thank you. I think it it, it connects, or you've helped me see its connection to an earlier uh, topic. I think going back... Well, pretty or pretty early in 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 the podcast series. Now we've done I think over a hundred, like one hundred and seventy five episodes. Almost uh, there. We've talked about uh, a phenomenon called the Red Queen problem. Yeah, the Queen from Alice in Wonderland, and it is a revised perspective on the notion of progress, where progress is never you know entirely straightforward. There's always a loss of ground. And really can be thought of more in a thermodynamic sense that in energy transfer, heat, which is unusable, becomes, you know, grows. And that that increases, you know, the randomness of the universe. That's the thermodynamic principle. But the Red Queen problem, I think, puts the, the notion of progress into a much more, uh, well, realistic light of, of things, you know, invert themselves and revert. You know, it's never a coherent directed progress you know it can't be presented with a nice coherent vector but the other thing that that uh made me think of is another one of our heroes that we've spent quite a bit of time discussing charles fort who mm -hmm. took you know a view about kind of the organic nature of innovations appearing you know that they they kind of showed up at certain times for reasons. But he also was beginning, without getting into a conspiracy theory frame, there was also a suggestion in, in some of the things I've read that innovations are held back, that progress is shaped by forces, usually with monetary or capitalistic intent, but also control. And that where things come from and when they arrive, we should think they're suspicious because for a range of reasons, they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. This brings us to 
we've mentioned the possible mental health calamities that can that can and maybe are arising because individuals feel increasingly less emblematic of culture, less representative of human knowledge. And for listeners, remember that the emblem is something that is irreducible. It is just the thing that it is. And to be a human who is emblematic of human knowledge is to in your day-to-day life act out the act out knowledge essentially to be a living organic part of it and what it's saying here is that uh people are feeling less increasingly less emblematic of culture uh and you go on to say i propose we now try to bring human knowledge to light in terms of a metaphor slash analogy slash model which relates it to the memory palace, a consciousness structuring tendency slash paradigm, and the swamp, a logical necessity filled with illogical monstrosities, wonders, shadows, and blank zones. Kind of like an endless hall closet, too. Tell me more about the endless hall closet. <laughs> well, I... Uh, <clears throat> okay, so for listeners who aren't familiar, David and I have been looking at... Uh, a juxtaposition of two ideas, the memory palace of Bruno and that idea, we've using that as a, me- a metaphor for a particular kind of structuring of, of knowledge by at the individual person level. Then we looked at, again, on the individual level, the swamp, which is an immense category that we magically create of all the things that we don't know, including things we don't want to know. It is a way of managing ignorance and, and attention and focus. And it may be a logical necessity just to preserve coherence of mind and energy for immediate practical survival. But the idea now would be to think about what human knowledge as of today means, you know, whether it's titles in a library, whether it's formulas and equations, algorithm, what is it? It's a huge, amazing thing. But David has given us some really cool entities and the idea of, uh, which we both share, but I think it's got some wonderful angles on it, of looking at things in terms of a creature, you know, a kind of interesting monster that we have some real respect for, but with not just an organic nature, but with a sentient uh, nature, with some strategies, you know, and I think that kind of uh, monsterfication of things is, is very helpful. So I think it is possible to come to terms with what human knowledge is. And it's a surprisingly un un, uh, examined question, I think, across the years. I think that some of the ancients sort of thought about it, but as so-called knowledge has grown, that's one of our paradigms. That's a real interesting argument. Um, Because then we've got the red queen problem of what's been lost or forgotten. Do we actually know? I mean, if it's been lost or forgotten, we don't know, right? There's a you know paradox problem there. So I was thinking about 
this is a good project for us because we do we do good model and analogy work and we're both visualizers too or or we have that kind of appreciation of that so i'm i'm just trying to think about what would be a real way to think of human knowledge in a way that gives it some kind of visual graphic dimensional sense other than just a kind of the, 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 the bland nothingness of, you know, infinity or eternity. I mean, those kind of meaninglessness, I think that's human knowledge as a phrase just kind of bewilders and, and doesn't really do anything. The first image that comes to mind is car keys. I've got car keys in my head and, uh, I, and I've got, and I've got those, uh, those ceramic bowls that some people are fond of putting their car keys in so that they don't lose them. I'm thinking of a person who is walking around looking for their car keys without realizing that the keys are in their pocket and they never bothered to check, uh, in terms of it being a monster, I'm trying to think of a way to interpret that into monsterhood uh, because I do like the idea of human knowledge as a monster. Um, I think of exploding heads. This is because I've been teaching Lovecraft, by the way. So I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking of people being driven mad and their heads exploding and the carving sigils into their chest type stuff, this kind of esoteric forbidden knowledge but that's not what human knowledge is because human knowledge is oh i almost said human knowledge is what is known but i don't think it is i think it's something deeper than that well this gets into the really complex territory of negation versus you know, a thinking of negation in a unhelpful way, because part of what knowledge has got to mean, it's what you don't know. It is the swamp. It, it has to embrace that. It has to deal with, well, these are the limits of, of knowledge. This is the incompleteness theorem over here. You know, this is the uncertainty principle over here. You know, our our knowledge has to that that's the 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 edge of the universe mm. thing that we're also talking about, and you know that oscillation between living at the heart of the universe and at the edge by definition, and so knowledge isn't the same as what's known, and I think there's also a kind of a connotative difference in that uh, knowledge only exists sort of well it starts with a denotative larger frame and what's known almost only has a connotative existence right right it's it's every day it's it, yeah. it's you know it's really basic it's walmart you know it's, it's it's down to you know down to the ground whereas knowledge has to not be that Lovecraft had it pretty close when he invented the Necronomicon. Yeah. The, grim, the grimoire bound in human skin. That's pretty close. Uh, if it was something like a grocery list bound in human skin, 
or how could you take the Necronomicon a step further? Well, isn't that what some of the the magical books have done? I mean, think of the weird Voynich manuscript, you know? Yeah. Those kind of, yeah. Um, and that's that's leading into uh, uh, the tool. Uh, but I, I think that the idea of that, it almost becomes a Borgesian thing of, mm-hmm. well, it, 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 it manages to emblematize itself, you know, that's a real achievement. It, 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 it shows that emblems are, are not eternal things that have been just lying around that we somehow discover them. No, they do come into being. It's just, they come into being emblematically which, or, you know, quite magically. It's hard to break them down or, or reduce how that works. It suddenly is something that, that people want to have in mind, you know? That is, yeah, I'm going to have to think about that one more. I, pro- uh, I propose that we now try to bring human knowledge to light in terms of a metaphor, analogy, model, which, re- oh, wait, I read that. One clue is that we know anything overly architectural, like the memory palace, is too static, fixed. We need something more organic, dynamic. Is this what the internet is? Is it what AI is, if viewed as some emergent composite entity, strangely decentralized, but potentially ubiquitously local? It's a very Lovecraftian sentence, by the way. <laughs> it is. Is, <laughs> is this is this ominously and precisely what AI is not? Yes. I think that is precisely what AI is not. Uh, I don't... So... We need something more organic, dynamic. Is this what the internet is? I don't see the internet as organic or dynamic at all. I see it as a stack of algorithms. To me, it's a lot more ordered than that. Um, And I think that that is, in a way, it's kind of hopeful because there is something interesting about the organic brain and and the human soul that I don't think AI, at least now, uh, can't quite replicate replicate it is decentralized right so this this sort of proto idea of something that is decentralized but ubiquitous is very interesting and far be it for me to say that that can't be taken in an interesting way but the next step that it would have to be is decentralized ubiquitous and generative in an, in an interesting way uh, and I don't think it is that. I think it's uh, it's the sum total of the internet's knowledge up until 2021, but it doesn't have the capability necessarily to do anything that hasn't already been done before. Um, the memory palace. See, now we're getting it. See, this is interesting because, like the the counter attack, if we want to use a war metaphor, Lake Off style. Uh, is to say that something like the memory palace and swamp dichotomy is actually the uh, antithesis of an, a decentralized AI, right? Because it's inside of you. It's a you who contains multitudes versus a multitude that presents as one. Uh, it's organic. It's generative. It 
goes down a lot of blind alleys and has a lot of false starts, whereas the decentralized AI is very, uh, you know, uh, uh, precise, perhaps. So I like I like the memory palace and swamp split as a kind of opposite end of this AI spectrum, which, by the way, I'm totally pro AI and I use it all the time. I'm not an AI downer. I just think that they're two different things. I am so glad to hear what you've just said tonally and, you know, the, the rhetorical meaning of that. But I think that the way you said that would really be helpful to uh, a lot of people at this time because and it was important that you added that you're pro-AI. Um, but I think what you're saying there is that you are repositioning AI from how it's being presented in the media and maybe worried about and fictionalized and also romanticized and overpromised to look at it more honestly of what it really is and to try to get into that mindset, so to speak, um, and also then making a value judgment about is that the, the approach that we want as the the new paradigm, you know, moving mm -hmm. forward. And you come down very solidly against that. And I completely support that position. But I think it 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 then also needs that complementary notion of of kind of admiring AI, but for what it is. And I think that you can also have in the admiration category of respect and anxiety too mm -hmm. about what it can be used for. So I thought that was that was very helpful. Um, I like the idea, and I loved actually the. This is a good example of of. It isn't just really what you say; it's also the decisiveness with which you say it. That the internet, in your view, is far from organic and fluid and flexible in this sort of Shiva dancing sort of you know. <laughs> time squid insect network of you know, no 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 you're actually seeing it in really kind of boring warehouse logistics terms and i love that tonal shift that you you put on it you know because i i know people i'm sure you do too who really get kind of starry and gooey about the internet religious yeah 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 and I don't think that you've been dismissive. You didn't say anything sort of, you know, really negative or offensive, but you brought the internet down to, oh, God. Oh, that sounds, well, that, yeah, let's talk about something, hey, you know, <laughs> that yeah, kind of. Hey, hey, I, I, I am totally in awe of the logistics of an Amazon warehouse. I think it's incredible that I right. can click, I can click two buttons and get a, you know, a face, a razor, you know, two days later, that's really cool. But while I'm still appreciative of it and I think it's cool and I have respect, respect for it, it has nothing to do with my advancement as a, as a human, my organic brain thinking, two totally different things in my opinion. And the internet's the same way. It's awe inspiring, but not all inspiring the same way the ocean is or God is or something like, you know, it's, it's two different types of awe. 
maybe sublime awe versus material awe. Maybe there's, there's, there's two different types of that, but yeah. Yeah. No. So I think it's cool. I think it's cool. I just think that the people who get mystical about it are a little, mm, I don't vibe with it. I don't see it that way. I guess you could say. Well, let's put your uh, outsource idea, which I said is kind of a, a preview of my notion of triangulation to the test, because isn't a way to look at what you've put forward here is that humanity is hypnotized by their creations. It's a mirror hypnosis circuit. And what's missing is the triangulation point of something external and bigger, outsourced, as you put it, but the ocean. And then you said, you know, something that is not looking into the distorted mirror of our own creations. I, I like that. I wonder what you think that triangulation point might be. Well, I think you've already laid an important, you know, piece of track in saying that whatever it is then falls into the frame of religion, nominally at least. It may be an expanded definition of religion as far as some people go, but I think that you and I know exactly what we're talking about. And I think many of our listeners do too. It's it's not uncommon to use the notion of religion in pretty lateral and flexible terms because it's in fact a very uh, flexible psychological state in need. So I think we're at a crossroads right now. And for people who uh, splash around paint in an, an artistic sense, this is, there is a moment, and it's not that composition doesn't figure into other art forms, but there's a moment, I think, with painting where you've got to hit it right in terms of the composition peak. However good you end up thinking the painting is or other people do, there's a moment within itself where composition has reached a kind of crisis point. And that's got to be the let go moment. I'm afraid that because once you go over that, you've got a mush. Somehow the tipping point, you know, uh, any kind of a mathematical exponential sort of explanation just goes off the charts and you've mm -hmm. lost it entirely. And you're painting over everything or throwing it out, throwing the canvas out or whatever surface you're working on. My fear is that we have reached a global point of communication and interconnection. And most of that interconnection is argument now. Mm -hmm. And that's not, shouldn't have surprised anyone. But the, that then increases the, the randomness generally. Heat, you know, going back to the thermodynamics idea, that becomes then elevated to the point of hate, anger, war, you know, more and more conflict, you know, more and more social dysfunction. And I think we could end up getting a kind of consensus mush of a worldview that is held religiously, but is pretty difficult for most people to articulate. And 
functions almost because it's like a just a very primitive uh basic fairly generalized frame mm-hmm. that really doesn't offer any of the sustenance that your position about implied in a soul means so that things begin to mush out more and more and more and more and more mm-hmm. well, i think we might be seeing that now of i mean if we can't make democracy in a basic political sense work we certainly can't make the larger issue of uh, a cosmic vision of of what it means to be human and and living on this planet that's not going to happen we're going to get more and more hypnotized i think by our reflections that's what people walking around looking at their i mean that's what that totally Yeah, it's yes, yeah, the, the black mirror, you know, the scrying mirror, basically. I, yeah, I think that our problems will not be solved with a new piece of hardware or a widget or something like that. But you said two words that broke my head open just now, which is crisis point. And now I'm thinking of crisis point as the point of triangulation that we're talking about right now. Uh, it's what we're moving toward. It's what humanity has moved towards many times. Uh, things like war, famine, earthquakes, tornadoes, they all represent crisis points. And information, algorithmic information, human knowledge, it feels like are reaching a kind of crisis point. But what if crisis point didn't have to necessarily mean death and destruction, but could be archetypalized and turned into a kind of God, like an Azathoth, again, Lovecraftian, chaos Mm -hmm. God, right? What if that was, if chaos and tricksterism, uh, uh, the the point before the crisis point, maybe, if that could be the, the node of triangulation on this map that we're making, that might be a helpful tool. And a, just a beautiful, beautiful idea. I think that is a fabulous repositioning and reinvention of the notion of crisis and speaks to that, the difference between a challenge and an opportunity, you know, uh, mm-hmm. ambush and surprise, as we were talking about. It's attitudinal, you know, in, in a, a day-to-day sense, but it's spiritual and soulful. And I think the mm-hmm. bigger sense of do we see the crisis point as an immense possibility of triangulation and really to change the entire dynamic uh i used to have a a friend in college who he was a heavy stoner but his shtick generally was to come out with just outrageous you know, statements I just out of the blue. And he would often say, we've got to change our whole strategy, you know? And every once in a while, that just makes me laugh because there's such a, something so hopeful about the idea mm-hmm. of being able to do that. And that's what you're talking about with the triangulation concept. I think that is the, the seeing the horizon in the crisis point seeing that possibility in an excited ebullient courageous way oh this is a good moment i had a a thought about 
the lost explorer's motto. And I didn't want to use it as an aphorism. I, I just was going to float it at some point and see what your response is and what listeners think. So this is a good time for it. It's very simple. Cur- courage born of curiosity. Mm. You know? I love that. I love courage born of curiosity. That's great. Also, I like the idea of a new religion. Instead of being a Christian, you could be a Christian. Right? Oh, because, nice, nice. Christ and crisis are so close, you know, wow. and you could worship the crisis point. And the crisis point wouldn't have to be that far from a cross. It's an intersection, at least. Uh, maybe it's a chaos star or some some artist could render that in like a really cool way. But it would be a church that sort of values the 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 deep understanding and respect for the algorithmic but then also has a kind of hedonistic bacchanalian meat and potatoes humanity element to it and it seeks to blend those two together while always reciting uh, liturgies warning of respecting and kind of hoping for the crisis point in fact, it kind of sounds a little, I mean, it's close to Christianity with things like revelation and, and everything like that, but we're not talking about a, a rapture or an apocalypse, right? Or maybe an apocalypse in the actual meaning of the term, which is just, you know, a great change. Uh, but we're always, whether it's in the minutia of your life or in the great geopolitics of the day, we are forever uh bowing before the crisis point that was such a gorgeous riff you know it's uh there's kind of a reverend america thing of uh, i could imagine you write an oklahoma school teacher becomes the you know messianic evangelist figure for a new kind of ghost dance cargo cult church in oklahoma i think that could be a really cool i could i could see you playing that you would totally fit that role (laughs) that would be too cool that'd be too cool i think we have time to get to this bit okay so two more notes compare an artifact that is dynamic and on the move right now across the cosmos the gold record sent along with the voyager is this a noble or pathetic message in the bottle gesture? I think if we could develop a model of human knowledge, how to depict an individual's relationship to it, we'd have done a great service. Grant Morrison wrote about soft drinks that contained whole subjects, not mere books. If you could drink a library or get a brain implant and know everything, how many people would want that? The fentanyl epidemic seems to be going in just the opposite direction. I'm interested in the connection between the gold record of the Voyager, this knowledge, this message in a bottle type thing. It's very interesting because you send it out into outer space and you ask us to question, is that is that cool or is that kind of sad? And then you... Uh, contrast that with the idea that most people uh, are sending into 
the cosmos of themselves numbing agents and they want the opposite of knowledge to be transmitted to them. Why is knowledge always going out? Uh, I thought that was a really lovely and poetic note. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I think that your playback on that is, is even better stated. And I think that really means that it got through because that there is something poignant about these two contrasts that I think do uh, raise a lot of questions. I think if we take the knowledge, you know, uh, being able to absorb uh, endless or nearly endless amounts of, of knowledge. I remember growing up that, that a lot of people would have that kind of daydream, you know, and it was okay to talk about it, you know. Um, you could be abducted by aliens or step into another dimension or whatever. But for you, time just, you know, expand and you're able to read and read and, and you come back and it's only five minutes have passed or something like that. Right, right. I, I don't, I think that what I get from a lot of young people is the more knowledge you have, the more isolated you would feel. Mm. You know, I feel that way. I, 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 too. I think yeah. sometimes, you know, outside of, I mean, this is one of, well, it's a crucial part of the, uh, the importance of of contact with you and our listeners is for I was going to say that yeah you I was going to say I mean, that and it's one of the things it's one of the reasons why I have such reverence and respect for the internet is that uh you know I have a lot of people in my life but there's nobody like you and so the ability of us to be able to connect first through uh books and then to have a continuing conversation on the internet is so important because before the internet uh, maybe we would have, we would have written each other letters, sure, but uh, without you, it would just be. Who would I talk to about all this stuff? Not very many I people. I feel exactly the same way, and I I really I mean I'm so grateful for that because there is such a need, and there's also a very you know every time. Every time I talk to you, I feel like there is not only a need fulfilled, but there's something positive created. There is mm -hmm. something generative. And you mentioned that as a condition of AI that may not ever be you know, fulfilled. And I think it's partly because there aren't these sparks flying off, this strange harmonic. And you and I have shared that from the get-go, and it's very rare in life. I mean, I, I've, I've found that very, there's no, and there's obviously no predictive quality to it. You can't go, well, I'm going to go to an elite school because these people are smart. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, but they're going to be, maybe. yeah, they're not going to be harmonically in tune with you necessarily. There's right. no rhyme or reason to it. And it's, it's been one of the most exciting things in my entire overall life, but certainly my artistic intellectual life. That's awesome. That's really cool. Let's talk about this banger of a note. It's a short one, but it's powerful. Another idea to explore is vicarious experience. We may live in the vicarious age. Interesting connection to vicar, meaning substitute, and as a religious title, God's proxy 
or representatives or representatives on earth. Everything is vicarized today. We have vicarized ourselves. I don't know if there's a better term for that. And it's very interesting because when you think about it in terms of people watching TikTok, people will watch TikToks of, you know, a man flipping a house. Or they'll watch a TikTok of how to change your oil. That's instructive. It's helpful. But a lot of kids in my classes, they watch TikToks and YouTube videos of people doing very simple things. Here's me going to a 7-Eleven in South Korea. Here is me riding a zip line in Belize. Here is me having a beer in, I don't know, Buenos Aires. That's vicarizing existence. And what's so fascinating to me about that is that a vicar in religious terms is that midway point, the represent God's representative, much like a priest on earth. And it's beautiful because it is projecting the holy onto mundane or adventurous human spirit and experience. So that's really cool. But it's also sad in its own way, too, that, we're, that we do that kind of thing, that we're not living those adventures. Not even, not adventures in the getting on a boat and sailing the world kind of way, but little things like visiting a country or eating sushi. People watch videos of other people eating. Well, How much more vicarized could you get? It, it is so profound and pervasive. I think many people will just never be able to, to really see it clearly in their own lives. Mm -hmm. But I think it is... It's just so all-embracing. It's very, very hard to to get out of it. And one of my analogies for it, it goes back in time, but I was just thinking of it because a, a friend from Australia who's seven or eight years older just was in contact with me. But a, quite a long time ago now, uh, it was his second marriage. I remember it was a really terrible day, but... I went, it was at a really uh, famous old bluestone church. And afterwards, everybody went back to their house or uh, a parent. I think it was, yeah, his dad's house. And so there are kids running around and it's, it's really raining and sleeting. It's terrible. But it's, there's, there's a lot of family activity. There's stuff going on in the garage. It's very low key, very working class. His dad was a cop. It's it's very unpretentious, but somebody, a brother-in-law or whoever, is videotaping the whole time, and this is going back away. So this is kind of crude, but stops after the the VHS tape is complete and goes in and puts it on TV. The entire party stopped, and everybody came to watch the video. And that was it. All of the conversation, the games, the screaming kids, everything stopped. It was just television was on. 
Mm. You know, and that still remains in my mind. I mean, I was I was physically there to see it. That remains in my mind as just an amazing performance of this problem and how we have completely lost sight of that hypnosis, you know, and I don't know how you triangulate out of that. That would be an interesting challenge. To to some extent, I would suggest that uh, a lot of the postmodern art perspective, I'm just thinking of this on the fly here. The answer is, well, you get someone filming the people watching themselves on the video, you know, and then you see if if they're going to, are, are they going to start performing for this new video or are they going to, you know, suddenly they're in a, in a, you know, I think that would be the way that sort of the postmodern mindset would sort of twist people's heads at, are you going to perform for the new camera or are you going to see how you performed, you know, on, on the, the, the video that's already done. Or you create a crisis point and you let a fire in the sink. Right. Two options. Two, <laughs> two, two yeah. options. Yeah. I like both of them. I like both of them. But yeah, I think, you know, getting people out of their stupor, and stupor is the word for it, is something that I think about every day when I go into class because it's not everybody, not every kid has this problem, but some of them you can tell are completely captured. They're completely, like they can't... Uh, they can't get away from the phone. And when I do my sneaky, you know, peeking over the shoulder to see what they're, what they're looking at, it's never anything that interesting. It's TikTok videos of people doing stuff. Yeah. You've, you've seen TikTok. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's nothing special. Maybe every once in a while you see something and you think, wow, that's cool. A lot of mine are, are pretty, pretty awesome uh, skateboard tricks those are cool i like watching those but of course it's determined by your algorithmic relationship you know how much you know how much gets fed back to you that is Mm -hmm. you you know is kind of dependent on how how often you tune in you know um but look you just gave me a really monstrous idea about the question not so much of human knowledge. I think we could put that aside for the moment. I'm thinking now a model metaphor analogy for the crisis point triangulating itself and your mention of a trickster figure, which I think is a very helpful sort of idea. Somewhere between an entropy chaos figure and a trickster figure, possibly a new kind of archetypal hero. Um, and I think if we thought of it, the challenge that way, that, because it's creating a character, you know, and I think that would be, uh, a good thing to keep in mind. Listeners help us out. You know, we will take drawings. We'll take any suggestions. I think this is a really, you know, the surrealist thing of exquisite corpses, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's it's kind of this, but on a really big scale, you know. That would be awesome. Would you like to hear my James Dean? I'm hanging out, man. I'm hanging out. See you right. in Paso Robles. See you in Paso Robles. So, not trying to weasel my way out of it, 
This one is less plot based than uh, the previous challenges have been, but I got to some really interesting questions that I think you'll dig. So I intercept Dean at a gas station while he's on the way to Paso Robles. And I have, uh, or this 17 year old, in this case, it's me, whatever. Uh, I bring just a little starter camera from today from modern day, like a Nikon Z50, something that just takes a real crisp, clear image. Because I know that Dean likes photography. He's an amateur photographer. Uh, so I ask him if I can take pictures of the spider. He says, yes. And I ask him to pop the hood. He says, yes. And so I take pictures of that. And after that, we are off to taking these crisp 2023 cheapo images of things and he's just fascinated by it he loves this camera he misses the race and over time he ages he takes on fewer and fewer roles i'm thinking kind of a marlon brando trajectory for james Dean. okay okay uh but the interesting question so what has happened here when i've done this because i've saved him is that the American story, and by extension, the human story, has lost an archetype. It's lost a symbol. Because the death of James Dean is a powerful symbol. Lots of, I mean, I visited the bust of him at the observatory in uh, somewhere in LA. I forget where that was. But I, I walked it. Uh, we have Marilyn Monroe, for example. And so that's a symbol of a very uh, beautiful, famous woman who got lost to fame and drugs. And that symbol acts as a story that people really understand, uh, uh, preserved beauty. And Dean is similar in that way, in that he, you know, it's this preserved beauty, this, this idea of cool that uh, was never able to grow old. And that died in a pretty spectacular fashion. But it's also, in its own way, a kind of cautionary tale. And I wonder about that in, in its status as a symbol, as somebody who drove a car too fast and paid the price for it. Somebody who was masculine, who had all these interests. Because Dean was, he was into photography. He was into art. Uh, he was an outdoorsy guy. He loved to read. So did Monroe, I think, if I remember correctly, although I know a little bit less about her. Um, this sort of holistic, organic being was wiped out very quickly by moving too fast. And I wonder about what culture looks like if we never had a cautionary symbol that seemed to, in a sinister kind of way, be cautioning against a lifestyle like that. People have a negative tendency to do that, to lump everything all into one. Oh, these people who are so vibrant and so full of life, look what happens to them because they live too hard and then they pay the price for it. And I think a lot of people have been able to use stories like that, symbols like that, as an excuse to not live at all. Uh, so that's what I have. Like I said, it's less plot-based. I was... Uh, having fun with our conversation. But I think that's an interesting question. What does it mean when time loses a symbol? I absolutely agree with you. I think that is a phenomenally interesting question. And I think that's a wonderful response rather than trying to do 
kind of back to the future, fill in the blanks or plot based thing. And, but the phrasing is what's I think really lovely. I think you've got that into a very concise package of something that is profoundly moving and resonant and suggestive. And it does raise a lot of questions. I think that it's a marvelous way, not just a marvelous Jungian way to look at culture, but it's something that does have emblematic, irreducible clarity to it because it is active and it's very hard to, I mean, you've raised a question that you could run a fantastic weekend workshop with really creative, you know, inspired artists, writers from a range of, of fields and disciplines and points of view. And you wouldn't exhaust that topic. Mm -hmm. um, that is the difference between not every physics question, because obviously there are some that just are endless too, but this is beautifully endless the way you've, you've laid it out. And, and just approaching it with that mindset would be enormously valuable and, it would be very helpful for individuals to be able to, you know, kind of collaborate on that. I think that's part of our loneliness of not being able to, not just that question, but the kind of thinking and the register of thinking that you're in with that. Because it is, uh, and that is a beautiful way uh, for me to kind of think about and try to bring some coherence to that moment in my own life. I've written about it from several points of view, but I think at 3 a.m. in the morning with dense central coast fog on one side and strangely clear starlight on the other, having just left home, I think I was wondering that kind of question without it being as clearly phrased. I think that's mm. beautifully musically said too. Wow. And that was awesome when you just, that last sentence was, gave me chills. That's good stuff. Do you have a tool for us today? I do. And it's, uh, it, it, it's, it ties in both the tool and the tip. I was thinking of a very strange dude from Australia who I didn't know that well, but he left a big impression in my life. He was the production manager of an advertising agency that I first hooked up with. And he was in a super, tense total efficiency but also dressing to the hilt in a kind of gordon gecko you know the michael douglas character from wall street mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. very very weird uh tightly wired dude and over the years he ended up having two children by two different women and in both cases he had been caught by janitors or they had been caught by janitors having sex in the office after <laughs> hours. I don't know what that meant, but he was a very creative guy and he had trained professionally as a photographer in New York. And he got a house. Uh, mainly he really needed a bigger place to deal with these two different kids on the weekend. He was trying to sort of do a dad thing. And he bought a house, the cheapest derelict house on a really, in a really exclusive part of Melbourne. And it had a pool. 
and the pool had, was completely swamped out. And he had an idea of taking a series of photographs, progressive photographs, in a kind of Ralph Eugene Meat Yard way as he emptied things from the pool. And he told me about it. And I said, um, Richard, I'd really, can I help? Can I be a production assistant? But I'd really like to kind of document that. And so I ended up sort of documenting him doing this draining. And, you know, lawn chairs came out, you know, some basic things that you'd expect, but a lot of things that you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. And the documentation unfolded. And he was so meticulous from a production standpoint that he ended up turning it into quite a beautiful fine arts first edition, only edition coffee table sort of book. And I don't have that. I don't have my, I can't remember if I got, I, he, they were very, and they, they were so beautifully produced in a kind of weird, stark black and white framework that was not surreal necessarily, but it was nonetheless distressed from reality. And I was thinking about magic books, magic scrapbooks. And I think there's a real, real value in, uh, in doing that, even on a small scale. I've really, I think that you and I have talked about this. I want to reinforce that to listeners. I think magic books, magic scrapbooks, a kind of, even if they're not fully handmade, this ended up being a beautifully art-produced, art-published, limited edition. But the simple way that this emerged as a tool in my mind is it was quite hypnotic for me to watch and help find these strange miscellany in this very unsanitary-looking swimming pool. And to try to be restoring order, we were directly dealing with chaos and trying to move towards some sort of new coherence. There is everything to be said for trying to make metaphors concrete when and wherever possible. You can't do it. None of us can do this all the time. It takes special effort. We have to deal with metaphors as often the conceptual and too often, unfortunately, the empty things that they are. But if there is a possibility to make a metaphorical proposition into an actual physical ceremonial reality, the effect of that is phenomenal, you know? So that's my tool. And when you're moving and you have a bunch of these boxes, there's so many opportunities to do that. Exactly. Well, that's a great, you know, that's, we, we take for granted how powerful the moving experience is. We know it's traumatic. We know it's inconvenient. We know it's a house, but my God, it is really an existential learning crisis moment to try, you know, if there ever was one. Absolutely. Awesome. What is your tip for today? Okay. I was thinking of uh, my stepbrother who was 
a genuinely eccentric in addition to being criminal. And he went through a phase and it, he got me into it too. And admittedly, we were high. I do say that we were, we did get stoned, but we'd listened to this Chinese community radio station in San Francisco. So it's a Cantonese community radio. There's a little bit of music. Sometimes there's a lot of shouting. There's, I mean, we just couldn't, we had no idea, but no English whatsoever. Okay. And we, of course, because we were high, we did laugh because sometimes it just seemed like to make no sense to us. And some people go, that's very xenophobic. But we were very innocent about it, really. And the important point was that that it wasn't looking down or, or laughing. We were actually richly inspired by it. It seemed to open up new channels of thought on different levels because we could not relate to, we stopped being able to relate to what we were hearing in terms of language. We broke the language spell a little bit. And this was a formative experience, I think, that I'm just now remembering and really appreciating again for quite some time. But it it's something that we could all easily do. I mean, it is, yeah, maybe just another language, but it's that stepping outside of, of these frames of things of, that you expect. And it, it harkens back to what you began the episode talking about with, you know, your students. There's the people who enjoy surprise and there's the people who think ambush or just shut off and just don't engage. But this is a technique that will help if you just give it like a little bit of meditative time people it does work it really works just listening to a, a foreign language that you have no expectation of understanding um i mean for instance for a lot of us i don't think listening to a spanish speaking would work because i think there's too much too many frames that we think we understand you got to get right free of that and it doesn't have to be a foreign language, but it needs to be that foreign to you somehow. And if you give that a little meditative time, even 15 minutes, I guarantee it starts to open up channels. Awesome. Amazing. I'm assuming based on, well, I don't have to assume anything because you told me. You've been dreaming. I have been dreaming and I, I've, I've got some insights that I think now that I've, I've intuitively supported for one, I've intuitively supported for quite a long time, but now I'm absolutely certain of it. And I've got some real documentary evidence of it. I think that that some kind of refreshment afternoon nap is essential to the dreaming process, because I think they really are different quality dreams and people who I know many people go, I can't have a nap. I won't want, you know, all that kind of thing. They're just not nap people. I think they're missing something important in dream studies and a kind of experience and perspective on dreaming that you can't have if you don't have some kind of refreshment nap. I'm now sure of that. And I, I'm, I could, I'm fleshing out what the common features are of, of afternoon napping and how that influences the larger uh, process. But a couple... Well, can, I, can, I, can I throw something in real quick? Yes, please. Just right there with the afternoon nap, just maybe something to add to your notes. 
there <laughs> there's a kind of a, a an afternoon nap is fantastic i took one today but there's a kind of melancholy to the sleep like to the texture of the sleep because of how brief you know it's going to be uh Sorry to interrupt, but that no, was just a, I, I, I think that's thing. important because it, it it's an interesting uh melancholy. I, I certainly would would include that in my tonal descriptions of that. I think that's that's an important insight. But I think that shows that different time periods of dreaming really do have different humors, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. and different tonal shadings to them that there that's important to include in the overall sense of dreaming because i think it's like well what would a dream life be like missing an archetype you know your earlier mm-hmm. question what does it mean to miss a whole tonal range or to yeah. not have access to that so um okay so there were just an enormously rich stream of dreams there was uh, a whole gambling thing that I got involved with and I'd apparently made a bet through <laughs> a friend and the the process hinged on filling out forms. There was a kind of a formal quality to making the bet and the name of the form was a Genevieve. And of course, I later thought, oh, Genevieve is the you know key figure in Private Midnight. And mm-hmm. I thought that was very odd. I also had, there was a crucial character who was my contact, not the bookie who was, I was uh, in trouble with, but my sort of friend who was really not quite friendly. I had a really rich, strong composite sense of this figure changing shape and being two or three people from my actual life, but never quite cohering that way. And for the first time, I really thought I was getting a handle on the composite figure uh, problem in dreams, composite characters. Because I feel I have done a lot of good work on the composite scenes and settings. But this was a moment of breakthrough, and I'm still puzzling over that. There was another sequence of dreams absolutely wild with reptiles fabulous reptiles not just some of the snakes i was talking about but some giant skinks and gila monsters and komodo it was just and i rescued an entire army of miniature genies from a lava lamp there was just some wonderful stuff and then a huge sad but brightly colored two-headed pig elephant creature that was so vividly presented on a cave wall i it just it made me that was the melancholy and it was very pronounced but here's a dream that i really would appreciate i don't know some interpretation i don't know how really simple-mindedly freudian this is or not but in a hotel room with my father and a younger woman in bed in the dark 
And what appears to be at first flies buzzing, which are kind of disturbing. They're annoying anyway, but in a hotel room. But I'm the one who points out that there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, and that they're actually not flies, they're bees, they're hornets. And I go on about being allergic. I was allergic to, I got stung 37 times on my hand once. And as a young child, and I, I, it was really bad. It looked like I had four hands, you know, so I was seen to be allergic. So I was panicking and trying to pull the sheets and blankets up over my head. And my father wasn't being very helpful. I'm not sure about what the younger woman girl was doing. There was no sense of my father being in any way, well, like he was, or 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 delivering on any of the kind of archetypal uh, possibilities that his character and and actual being might suggest. It was very very neutral, except younger, uh, not apparently drunk, and not helpful either, but. Event somehow the bees, the hornets dissipated. And I got up from the bed to go to the toilet. And I realized I was wearing two pairs of underwear, boxers over jockeys. And Hard not to put Freudian lenses on this on this dream. Well, from beginning I, to end. But I mean, so okay. And I, I, I'm not unaware, and I, I trot that in, in contrast to, uh, well, they say the gambling dream, which it didn't really have, which had a narrative focus, but much more like a 1970s independent movie than mm-hmm. this. What, what is the interpretation of that? What, what do you of the of the second of dream? The, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interest the indifference of the of the father is what stands out to me um the because your your father in this in this dream is it's important that he's not uh raging or red-faced or uh or other or, or soothing and kind it's just a complete indifference right the two pairs of underwear feels to me like extra covering around the penis so there's there's something about masculinity going on here and coldness and uh like a a father's the feeling of a father's inability to help you with life's little annoyances which aren't in fact little annoyances because they can sting your hand and make it swell up four times its size right so it's it it feels very uh you don't get the impression that you want to kill your father in this sense or that you hate him, but listening to you, I hear, I hear a kind of sadness about the dream. It, it, I feel like two pairs of underwear would initially strike somebody who's listening as funny, but I don't think it's funny. I think it, it sounds kind of sad to me. How did the dream feel like emotionally? Okay, well, that I mean, you're you're doing some, I think, brilliant psychotherapy here. Um, 
and demonstrating uh, a principle that you know you can do some really good and solid in, in, interpretation of your own dreams and your own thought, but it's so helpful to be able to triangulate to another point of view. And it's and it can't just be any point of view. I mean, your David's point of view is, is pretty unusual in my experience, and it, but immensely helpful. And I like the idea of, of of talking about it in terms of the tone rather than the symbol. So it's what the res, you know what the effect is, not mm-hmm. so much just the mechanisms. And it it was a sense of of, of melancholy um, and certainly kind of puzzlement puzzlement about where the the insects came from puzzlement about who the this female figure was the underwear thing is odd in in that i did as when i was going through puberty where end up wearing two pairs of underwear to bed because of the wet dreams mm-hmm. and no one told me anything about that my stepbrother was the first person who broke the news about what was going on with that and I've tried to write about that as an example of how we often take male puberty for granted. You know, we focus yeah. on, on girls and periods because that's kind of forced upon you. But I, I dealt with a lot of shame on that front. I mean, I remember, you know, washing the underwear and then leaving it you know, just so it wasn't obvious going into the washing cycle mm-hmm. family. And I really, that was a very powerful uh, and difficult and and just unhappy experience in that way. And not a good way to start something really sort of exciting. And I'm sure I'm not in that. But in the dream, the the two different kinds of, I mean, I think that was all that it's not the same, you know, that there were boxers over jockeys. But there was a kind of, I think the focusing on the indifference of the father is a brilliant insight. And I think this, you're, you're an exceptional listener and you bring a kind of analytic focus to it. That is not an AI focus, mm. you know? Um, and I think that is the, the issue there that you could almost say in my frame of reference, my mind, my experience that the dream figure of the father in this case is defined by all of the differences from reality and from the most obvious archetypal presentations he's had in other dreams Mm -hmm. strangely Mm -hmm. kind of neutral disappearing cipher a cipher rather than an emblem you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ooh, ooh, the the emblems found its uh it's negative in the cipher. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. We just did That's that. Cool. We That's just cool. did that in real time, man. Yeah, the cipher. Uh, maybe next. Maybe next episode we could talk about the cipher as a like. What are the cultural ciphers? I think we've got to now. We just gave birth to this sort of strange but very simple working model. You know, a beautiful inversion that is really a lot. I mean, I think that. That just raises so Taylor many Swift. Questions. Taylor Swift is a cipher. Yes, for sure. For sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that tie with his whole mysterious mass hypnosis, mass amnesia thing. That's that's. She's not exactly the one, but she's the focal point of it. Beyonce too, right? It's it's yeah. her and Beyonce. Yeah. Yeah, and that is also perhaps this very eerie crisis point. New religion, you know. 
Oh, oh man. Yeah, I got, I got a little goosebumpy there. That's yeah, that's cool. Me too. That's cool. That's cool. That's that's Lovecraftian too. We've had a we've had a semi Lovecraftian conversation actually. Uh, Certainly a pervasive undercurrent. Yeah. Yeah. Of of a of a lurking, squelching cosmic horror that's out there in the form of Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! That's cool, man. All right. Well, that'll do it for tonight. Uh, great combo. Yeah. I'm a, oh man. Got so many yeah. threads to pick up next time. Yeah. Well, thank you, David, and thank you, listeners. That that just gets me really ramped up. Me too. All right. Till next time. Okay.